Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. We've got a growing roster of terrific writers, loads of video, devilishly difficult quizzes, useful resources, and a whole lot more. So definitely check it out. It is truly a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., CSIS, and I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who each day, as he hits send on the SubChina newsletter, is heard to intone, for I am become death, destroyer of worlds, in his South African accent. Jeremy, greet the people. <laughs> um... Hello, people. Hey, Jeremy, <laughs> it's death here. <laughs> we we have we have a bit of business first, right, Jeremy? Uh, so tell our listeners about SupChina Access, would you? Uh, yes, absolutely. We have launched a membership program called SubChina Access, and for only at the launch price of uh, only eight dollars eighty eight a month, or eighty eight dollars for a whole year, you will get our members only Friday email newsletter. And you also get access to an instant messaging channel on Slack where you can talk directly to the editors in our newsroom, including me and Kaiser, uh, and discounts on events uh, and live podcasts, etc. So we'd love you to join us, help build a community, and support uh, independent journalism about China, SubChina Access. Indeed. Please come join us and, and, and chat with us on our Slack channel. It'll be a whole lot of fun. Uh, today we are in for a real treat, and we've got a, a topic right up your alley, Mr. Goldcorn. Uh, for many years, of course, you ran Danway, at first Danway.org and later Danway.com, and its focus, uh, for most of your existence anyway, was on media in China. Is that not so? That is so. I mean, its most long-lasting tagline was media advertising and urban life in China, and we uh, used to write a lot about uh, the media business and uh, regulation, journalism, censorship uh, from 2003 until about 2013. It just so happens that that is sort of the exact same period uh, that our guest has covered in her research. As I said, we are in for a treat today because today our guest is one of the smartest writers who is looking at the media landscape in China. Uh, Maria Repnikova teaches at Georgia State University. That's in Atlanta, not in Tbilisi. And I have had the great pleasure of joining her just now as a discussant for a presentation she gave here at CSIS in D.C. Uh, we are going to talk about what she presented, about the workings of propaganda under the Xi Jinping leadership. But more importantly, we're going to talk about her new book, which is called Media Politics in China, and about a paper that she's got coming out soon that compares critical journalism in China and in Russia. Actually, Maria spent her childhood between Latvia and Kyrgyzstan. So as somebody fluent in Russian, in English, and of course in Chinese, Maria is almost uniquely placed off for insight into this extremely important topic. Uh, the book, which also contains some comparisons, you know, the Russo-Chinese comparisons is absolutely fascinating, and her take is really refreshing. It, it accords perfectly, actually, with my own understanding of the subject, such as it is. And Jeremy, I think as somebody who's been engaging in, in and looking at Chinese media as long as you have, I'm really curious to see whether you feel the same way. So anyway, Maria, welcome at long last to Seneca. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here and uh, to talk to you about the new book and everything else you're curious about when it comes to Chinese media. That was pretty fun just now, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you did a spectacularly good job. It was extremely well received. Somebody thank just you. told me that it was the best talk that they'd they'd heard. Um, so I'm jealous. But anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Maria, since this is your first time on the show, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your background 
how you got interested in the subject of media politics, uh, which is something you've been working on for at least a decade now, right? And also, I want to ask about Latvia, because my grandparents actually emigrated to South Africa from Latvia. Oh, really? They were uh, kind of shtetl Jews from Eastern Europe, but they had... uh, the uh, deepest roots they ever had were, in fact, in Riga. In You're Latvia. rootless cosmopolitans. You have no roots. <laughs> so, what do you want me to? That's what right. do you want to know about Latvia? <laughs> well, first, let's start with uh, your background, okay. where you were born, and how you got involved in media, and then maybe you can tell me a little bit about your connection with Latvia. Sure. So, I was born in Latvia. Then I spent uh, some of my childhood in Kyrgyzstan, where my mother was born. And uh, I moved to the States when I was about 13 and a half. I came to Vermont, uh, started middle school, middle middle school, and then high school I spent in Vermont. And then I studied uh, for a year at University of Vermont and spent my undergrad studies uh, the rest of the time at Georgetown. At the time, I had a dream of becoming a diplomat, so I had no interest in the media. Um, but so it was very much you know, a career that I was aspiring to do. But then I got interested in research. And the first project that took me to China was a Fulbright grant to look at Chinese labor migration to Russia. Oh, so that was the first time I, I did, you know, serious research in China empirically. And uh, after that, I went to Oxford where I was studying with Vivian Shu, that some of you may be familiar with, a political scientist that came from Cornell and started the China Center there. And the topic that most interested me at the time was how, you know, creative resistance at the very boundaries of permissible sort of works in, Ch- in the Chinese context, you know, when it's so complex, when it comes to these various pressures on societal actors, what kind of tactics and strategies can they use to still survive in the system? And to me, journalists represented some of the most contentious actors. Yeah, and, yeah and, You know, sure. and thereby the relationship with the state can illuminate as much about this politics on the boundary as about the state in terms of adapting to societal pressures. That's how I became interested in the media and started this research on journalists. Maria, the, the the central theme in, in your work, which I first noticed actually in something that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal back, I think it was in early 2013, uh, you were trying to kind of correct certain re- misperceptions in the way that the international media outlets were covering the kerfuffle over a uh, special editorial piece that appeared in Nanfang Zhou Mo in, in Southern Weekly uh, for New Year's. Kaiser, it's possible some of our listeners don't actually remember the whole constitutionalism issue back in January 2013, or maybe aren't even familiar with the Nanfang Media Group. Uh, Maria, could you tell us also briefly about the Nanfang Group and the papers that it published and about the piece that started this business? Uh, sure. So Nanfang Media Group, until recently, has been one of the most uh, famous uh, media groups when it comes to more liberal and what I'd refer to as critical journalism in China. It published uh, Nanfang Zhongmo, Southern Weekly, which is one of the most famous, I think, uh, outlets out of this group, but also uh, Nanfang Dushibao, uh, Nanfang Renbu Jokan, and other, you know, two other outlets I've looked at uh, in detail in my research that also published quite significant um, reports um, that investigate all sorts of societal issues across China. So when it comes to this constitution issue, it was sort of the last tipping point um, uh, for this media group, but also especially for Southern Weekly, where an editorial that was essentially advocating constitutional reform was overturned by a local censor, To Jen, who suggested that, or not suggested, he imposed on the media outlet to publish a different editorial, which was essentially praising the party. It was a pure propaganda piece. And of course, journalists and editors of the media group were not happy with it. And uh, there were protests uh, outside of the building, public protests and negotiations taking place between journalists at Nanfang Jomo and uh, the local officials. And uh, very quickly, those negotiations turned into a compromise and journalists went back to work as usual. So it was far from a far removed from a radical case of protest that we've sort of hoped for. I think in some Western news outlets, it turned into a more compromised kind of collaborative um, negotiation. But eventually, in the past few years, the media group did end up commercially suffering and uh, kind of dying out, as I would argue. Anyway, Maria, I think it's great that you frame some of your work against a kind of dominant narrative in the West, a narrative that poses, I think, what I would and you certainly regard as a false dichotomy between dissent on the one hand and and collaboration or conformity on the other. Uh, This is something that you talk about in uh, an excellent op-ed that you wrote for Dissent Magazine in response to this idea that somehow dissent or or dissidents in in, in China has died uh, with the death of Liu Xiaobo. Uh, So you suggest in your book and in some of your other writings that there's a kind of focus on dissidents and on activists and this narrative casts them you know, as the protagonists and, and places really great hope in them. You were just talking about that with respect to, you know, the Southern protest over constitutionalism. But what does that get wrong? Or what, what is so quintessentially wrong about, about that narrative? And, and where does that lead us? Um, so it's a great question that I've been thinking about for a long time. So I think 
the first thing that it gets wrong is the existence of agency and uh, critical voices that subside uh, within um, those binary parameters of uh, romanticized radical resistance and uh, the absolute control of the party, right? So within that kind of spectrum, there are a lot of voices that um, critique and uh, improvise with different strategies to express um, sometimes subversive opinions, um, but don't necessarily result in outward um, contestation with the state or battle against the state. So the first thing is that we're look, overlooking the majority of voices, the critical voices that are right. not out, outwardly ra- radical, and where it leads us is, first of all, the overestimation of the power of outsiders or dissidents. So we're uh-huh. putting too much emphasis on that. I think that's the first thing. The second one is the underestimation of the persistence of uh, creative resistance within the system. So we're not looking at that as closely because we're looking only at dissidents. And lastly, most fundamentally, I think it makes us misunderstand um, radically the Chinese society, which is quite dangerous considering uh, the growing importance of China in the world, especially for the United States. Yeah, so you talk about this this mode of, of contention or contestation that you describe as fluid collaboration. Can, can you unpack that a little bit and talk about what, what that means? Sure. So I talk about fluid collaboration when in describing the relationship between China's critical journalists and central party state, but I think this relationship could also apply to other actors that are critiquing or working within the system. And the idea is that I describe this uh, relationship as sort of a flexible partnership uh, between these two sets of actors, where the party on the one hand uh, tolerates, you know, hesitantly tolerates uh, and encourages some critique when it comes to something that contributes to improving party's governance, and in particular local level um, issues, but also the idea of hearing out the public voices or grievances and, and addressing them more effectively. And on the societal side, on the journalist side, there's this general allegiance to central state's interest uh, as part of uh, the survival, essentially. It's a pragmatic decision, but for some people it's also an ideological decision that uh, being within the system is potentially more conducive to incremental uh, positive change than being outside the system and acting as a dissident. Right, yeah, that, that actually really accords with how I've understood the relationship basically more broadly between the state and, and intellectuals in China, but we'll get to that. So, Maria, what kind of reaction have you got from American or other international reporters who may have been perpetuating this narrative? So the first reaction that I tend to get is often that of disbelief and discomfort. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so the first question is, is there such a thing as investigative journalism in China? Uh, are there any journalists that are not jailed? You know, Are there any, ones, uh, you know, any practitioners who are essentially still alive, so to speak, you know, not almost physically, but, you know, they have their jobs or right. they're able to practice this. This is kind of the first question. Uh, the second reaction following that is often of surprise, kind of, okay, so there might be something. So they're sort of incredulous, but they're surprised and intrigued. And then at times there's also a certain curiosity um, that's kind of the third level of reaction about the alternative narrative or these different perspectives uh, that I've uncovered in my work. So it, it sort of varies and builds on one another. So depending on how far I get with the audience, I might be able to get to point three where we can actually have a discussion about this <laughs> in more in more depth. It depends on how, how successful I'm at that. So uh, you describe the way that journalists interact with officials as uh, guarded, improvisation. Uh, Explain a little bit of what that means and and maybe give an example or two of of this improvisation at work. Sure. So what I mean by guarded improvisation is this creative ad hoc adjustments that officials and journalists make to one another, but uh, the adjustments being always overshadowed by the important role of the state. So the state is always uh, guarding the the pace and the scope of the improvised action that takes place between those two sets of actors. But uh, the examples, you know, they they range from the example of discourse, for instance, the very policy of uh, Yulunti and Du, right, that we're going to get to later, their policy of media oversight is very ambiguous. So the state keeps it, I think, intentionally ambiguous because they can always adjust its parameters by keeping the language vague. But as a result of this vague language, journalists often use this language to reinterpret and to kind of uh, push back in the system. So for instance, conferences used to be held, not anymore, but a few years back uh, on Yulundian Du, the topic itself. And by uh-huh. using the official term, they were able to get through various uh, political pressures and still hold a very important, interesting uh, conference. Yulundian Du, you've used this word a couple of times, it means public opinion oversight. Yeah, public opinion supervision. Supervision, supervision through right. public opinion. That's, that's the idea. But it's also the significance of kind of media oversight. Um, so there's this ambivalence and kind of create creativity at the level of discourse, but most of what I describe, I think, in the book is at the level of restrictions. So a lot of topics um, are what are, are fitted into the so-called gray zone when it comes to sensitivity. So they're not completely off off the record or off the limit, but they are also quite sensitive. So they include topics like talking about the rights of migrants, talking about gender issues, talking about the recent case of kindergarten, sexual abuse, and so forth, environmental degradation. With all of those topics, the restrictions are often applied in an ad hoc manner and oftentimes preemptively, but also post factum, which allows journalists a little bit of space to navigate and to try to outrun the censors, to use social media to spill the story, or to practice what I call 
so-called Yidi Dian do extraterritorial supervision where they end up investigating issues outside the of other their provinces, r- right? other provinces. Own, so all of these strategies, uh, to me, fit under this framework of guarded improvisation. So there's improvisation on both sides. It's not just the journalists who are doing the improvising, but it's the officials themselves. It's the officials well. themselves, and they often are the ones initiating it or at least uh, allowing it to happen. But at the heart of your argument, there's this idea, basically, that critical journalists and government officials want the same thing, that they want better governance. And uh, journalists that you talk to in China, I mean, even pretty hard-hitting investigative reporters uh, that are doing so, uh, they don't seem to be out to upend the system or to bring the party down. Uh, they see their, their role as essentially, what, con- constructive, right? I think a lot of Americans are definitely going to have trouble with that idea, in part because it's it's hard, I think, for a lot of us to imagine that journalism can be conceived as anything but adversarial and, and, and even antagonistic to power. Uh, but also, I mean, because it's hard to see why these critical journalists would be complicit in, in the continued dominance of this, of this single-party state, which a lot of them see as just simply brutal and coercive, right? So how uniform did you find this posture among journalists to be? I mean, are there exceptions or... Are they, you know, do they all kind of express it? And, and did you find journalists who deep down just found the, the party to be fundamentally illegitimate, who, who saw their role kind of as American journalists do, who, you know, who basically wanted radical transition? Or are they spread kind of along a continuum? How do you, how do you approach this? Sure, or how did so, you, what did you find? So what I found is that, the, yes, there is this overarching stance of constructive journalism that, in my view, holds across uh, the spectrum, but the origins of the stance can vary. So why they end up being constructive or practicing it, you know, constructive journalism, uh, it has different reasons for different journalists. So for, for many of them, it's a pragmatic decision. It's essentially a compromise for trying to stay relevant and survive in a complex environment. Um, but b- being constructive journalists can also avoid or at least delay some of political pressures. But at the same time, for some journalists, uh, another group of uh, the subset of critical journalists, for them, there's certain deeper meaning uh, uh-huh. to constructive reporting. It's a certain belief that indeed by helping improve governance or by staying uh, as uh, allegiance to the party, it's actually a better way of um, changing things. So they really believe in this kind of ideological notion and has historic roots as well, of course. This idea of worrying about the nation and the tradition of Chinese intellectuals as helping the party is not new. It's not something that just was created by journalists. It's been around for quite a while. Yeah, we'll um, talk about that. And maybe. in some cases, journalists do openly express disillusion with the party and with their jobs and with the whole system. And they aspire to having more freedom. But in practice, if you look at their writings, they still end up upholding a cautious stance. And, and you know, like you say, offering solutions. Maria, so you talk about uh, this expectation among officials that critical journalists should uh, offer solutions, um, you know, that the media's uh, role is, is a positive and constructive one. Uh, but, it, I mean, that's a pretty tall order. I mean, is it realistic to expect that reporters can solve big, intractable problems that teams of technocrats can't, especially when, you know, no matter whether they are loyal to the party or not, they operate under an environment when it, where it's so easy to make a mistake, say the wrong thing and get into trouble. Uh, sure, yeah, the solutions uh, idea is indeed a very tall order. But what it speaks to more broadly is the expectation to be constructive. And this idea of constructive critique is not only uh, limited to providing direct solutions, which can be quite risky, but for the most part, it's practiced by uh, citing and referring to suggestions uh, by officials themselves and also by experts that often are the ones who kind of channel the solutions through the media. So as opposed to just being journalists being initiating solutions, which is obviously very difficult to do and risky, they would cite and interview various uh, individuals uh, for solutions that they're kind of looking to channel. So they're trying to, you know, propose a certain issue, they'll find the right person to speak about this issue, uh, the right expert. But when that doesn't happen, there's also just a reference to the state already handling a certain problem. So while you critique an, another aspect at the beginning of the report, there's often a reference to the fact that the party's already fixing it or addressing the crisis. Uh, that's another way to suggest that solutions are on their way. And a third way that I've observed is through comparison. So instead of directly talking about China, uh, there's a discussion of other cases, in particular when it was the case with the Wenchuan Earth earthquake, uh, a lot of the investigative reports uh, contrasted um, the infrastructure failures, but also the post-crisis management to the cases of Japan, uh, Taiwan, and the United States to sort of signal um, how things could be done better back home. So, so Marie, do critical journalists in your book essentially stand in for critical intellectuals? I mean, we, can we extend the conclusions that you draw about journalists and, and their relationship to state power uh, to describe also the relationship between intellectuals in the state more broadly. I mean, in my own short, very abbreviated academic career, I, I was fascinated by the way that loyal opposition worked historically in China and how you know intellectuals expect and they ordinarily receive a, a kind of tacit access to channels of consultation. 
uh, and that a key feature of the relationship between state and intellectuals is this this kind of dance, right? You know, that they let they they have these very very culturally conditioned ways of remonstrance, but they're they're accepted. So is is it kind of the same thing uh, with the, the critical intellectuals do that that uh, that you've described for the critical journalists? Uh, yeah, I think we can extend uh, this idea of fluid partnership uh, when that I describe with, with journalists to intellectuals as well. And in fact, I cite a lot of works also in the book that delve directly into intellectuals and they have different terms that they use for describing a very similar relationship. But also, it's important to note that many of these journalists consider themselves to be intellectuals. So they're not just journalists, they often see right. themselves as some, something more. In fact, uh, they're probably the most prominent intellectuals these days, right? Yeah, many of them, you know, especially the older generation ones, they definitely see themselves as Joshua Fengzi, you know, they're not yeah. just journalists. So in that sense, the roles can be kind of interchangeable, uh, but not completely, of course. An intellectual may be someone who's only writing books or um, kind of more prosaic stories, but not necessarily reporting the news. So the constraints they face in the field are, are very different from intellectuals, right? If right. Pure intellectuals, if we think about it this way. Maria, uh, you know, obviously you say there, there are still constraints on journalists, lots of constraints, no fly zones, if you will. Um, can we sketch out what the constraints are for working journalists, both in terms of what and whom they're allowed to go after um, and how the scope seems to narrow the higher and closer to the central government you get? But also a, a second part to the question is that you know, your thesis makes a lot of sense to me in the years that I was doing Dunway and really, you know, closely following the Chinese media every day from 2003 to 2012, 2013. But after Xi Jinping took over, the environment has very much changed. And it seems to me the space for even constructive journalists to offer any kind of critical insight has narrowed and that the rules of the game are, are, are not quite the same as what you describe. Hmm. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. So I'll answer the question about the no-fly zones first and then kind of lead into what has changed um, and has not changed, in my view, under President Xi. So to start with the no-fly zones, uh, I think there are multiple levels to this question. The first, I guess the obvious answer is what's completely forbidden, the red the, the red zone, so to speak, as I call it, what's not allowed to report on in, in any capacity unless you're told to with a very specific director directive. Uh, these topics have actually remained fairly constant um, over the past decades, including the sea era, the, the complete no-fly zones include issues that have to do with succession movements, right, the Tibet-Taiwan issue, uh, Xinjiang issue, going after the very legitimacy of the party, so questioning the legitimacy of the, of the party, any kind of reporting on potential democracy movements within China, but also comparing a democracy movement outside of China. China with potential of that happening in China. So anything that questions directly the legitimacy of the party uh, head on or tries to investigate high level officials that are not, you know, currently under investigation. You know, that's completely forbidden and it's been forbidden for for quite some time. Right. But uh, what's more interesting are the kind of pressures that journalists face in the gray zone that I described earlier, which includes many issues of concern of Chinese society, but they're not the most sensitive issues. In this case, I argue there are sort of three levels of pressures. Um, I define them as, you know, preemptive censorship pressures, the various uh, ad hoc mostly uh, Directives to delete uh, reports that are already in conduct. So someone is already in the field. They're given a phone call to remove themselves from that site and to, to delete the reports, to uh -huh. drop the, the coverage. That's actually one of the most common pressures that's been you know, complained about by many interviewees over the years. Uh, it's extremely frustrating. But then on top of that preemptive measure of deletion, of course, there are softer uh, directives of shaping a story in a certain way. So either following only Xinhua's lead on a story or only presenting a positive coverage or um, reporting but not discussing, not having any opinion pieces on this on this particular issue is another way that this kind of directives can go preemptively. Mm -hmm. In addition to these various layers of preemptive pressures, one could also get uh, difficulty, face difficulty in getting information access from officials. So sure. of course, no story is possible without information access. And that's one of the biggest pressures as well in the field, who's going to talk to journalists. And of course, many officials, especially at the local level, would refuse to provide any substantial information. And in fact, instead of informing journalists, they would inform on the journalists, you know, back to their connections at the center, try to bribe them, to harass them, to detain them, to accuse them of various bad things and essentially stop them from reporting a certain story. 
It's funny as you're as you're rattling these things off, I can think of precise instances, you know, that correspond to each of these tactics. Yeah, it's there funny. are many examples uh, yeah. of that, and then and then in addition to that, of course, there are post factum uh, pressures, uh, which have increased uh, with the advance of the internet, where you see uh, increasing signals and directives that say, you know, delete a certain story, adjust the message, uh, add this word to that word. It's they're very meticulous, a lot of them, uh, that go about uh, shaping the coverage once it's already online, because most of the content now is online. It's very easy for post-factum pressures to be applied on journalists. And on top of those pressures, just with pure content, there are, of course, more critical um, directives that are being sent down to the outlets, the editors, uh, that require sort of the apologies, right, self-criticism. When something went too far, there's a whole report that uh, some of these outlets write up and the editors in particular apologizing for crossing the line. And then if things go really wild, one could also be transferred to another media group or lose their job entirely. And of course, detention is the last resort. So you, you lose freedom on top of everything else. So there are many, many, many layers to the pressures that they face. And of course, it's, a, it's one of the most challenging I think, careers uh, in China or perhaps for journalists anywhere. China is one of the most complex, complex cases to navigate. But um, the second part of your question is about how do these parameters, uh, these relationships hold uh, in the C era, right? Is everything already different? So on the one hand, um, I think there are obvious differences. We can't negate the fact that the pockets of, uh, for critical reporting have shrunk. Some of the outlets we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, such as Southern Weekly, are no longer, you know, vivid or vibrant. We're yeah. not following them anymore. Uh, many journalists, as I'm sure you've both followed, have uh, changed their jobs, their careers. They joined uh, social media platforms and uh, left to study PhD for PhD programs in the, in the United States and other places. So the field has been transforming. And indeed, this gray zone has become more tumultuous. So in the past, it was kind of predictable which issue will last for how long when it comes to publishing a certain story and waiting for a directive to come down. But now it seems like it's less predictable. And there are more censors as well. So there's the one Simban and there's also propaganda department. There are just more actors that are sending various messages to these editors, which again complicate the story and make this gray zone sort of a little bit pinkish, right? That's kind of moving into the red zone right. um, of coverage. So in that sense, uh, it's become more and more restrictive. But I would also argue that the space has not completely died uh, out. In any restrictive environment, there are still subversive practices and voices. Even in the hardest time in the Soviet period, you know, we had some is that, right? People were reprinting, recopying by hand sure. uh, written articles. And in China as well, you know, we see emergence of some new platforms and new voices. So when it comes to platforms, something I talked about in today's presentation as well is Peng Pai, the paper, has been producing some quality to journalism over the past several years uh -huh. and has a pool of 300 people, so many of them actually former Nanfang Zhongmo journalists who are working there now. Uh, yes, the reports may not be as critical. Are they constructive critique? Yes, they are, actually. If you read them, you'll find similar solutions-oriented uh, reports, cautious critique, um, investigations into issues like the Tianjin blast, the kindergarten scandal, and many other stories, as well coming out of uh, the team at Soho and uh, Tencent, as well as Xin Jingbao, uh, the editor-in-chief of the investigative bureau. And, and these all fit the pattern that you described? I mean, things like the Wenzhou uh, train wreck or the Tianjin fire or the mm. kindergarten scandal, the RYB. Yeah, scandal. I mean, the pattern, uh, as I described, the main, the key feature is this flexible arrangement, right? The flexible negotiation. And I think for those cases, we still see that, for example, the space is a little bit more open at the beginning of a crisis, right? Because the government wants to present itself as responsive and as uh, basically um on yeah. par with standards of crisis communication. So there's a little bit of an opening to report something. Who is going to go how far? That's another question. But journalists have gone a little bit further for, in some outlets than in others investigating the issue. And then as soon as the issue becomes too popular online and people are discussing it, it turns into the red zone of sensitivity and it's completely banned and censored combined with the policy response by the state that suggests that, you know, here's how we fix it. Here's who we're going to punish. Right, so there's right. this mix of responsiveness and um, censorship. So in the case of dynamics, you know, how journalists negotiate and what the state does when it comes to this flexible censorship, I think the dynamics still hold, but the spaces are becoming smaller. And uh, some of these old spaces have died down, but some new platforms like creative nonfiction have emerged. And some new journalists I've interviewed over the last summer, the 19, 20-year-old, they're just entering the profession with different ideas than the older generation. So you know, even in this time when the Meiti Xindang, when the, 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 they have the... What did, what did Xi Jinping say? That the, the media has the surname of party. Right. Even now, you, you would say that, that this, this mode of contestation 
still persists. And well, the contestation the, is very subtle, right? right? So if there is no contestation at all, I think there would be almost nothing published that's outside of pure propaganda, right? If you if there is zero contestation, we would just see completely um, sort of top-down reports reprinted across media outlets. So I think as long as there's a tiny bit of space, and actually what we talked about today is the, this party being obsessed with credibility, the idea of creating some credible news outlets that would attract the public. It's not just about control, it's also about attraction. They require some more interesting reporting. So in this case, in this sense, there's a little bit of space. It is a very sensitive space still, and it may not last very long. We'll talk about how long is this outlet going to last? How long is this journalist going to stay in this job? So it's fast-changing environment, but I would not call off the entire picture and say that there's nothing happening and that the whole space is dead, because I think it just wouldn't give justice to those voices right. who are still trying to do something. Hey there. If you've listened to Seneca for any length of time, you know I am editor-in-chief of the SubChina Daily Newsletter, website and apps, and I also do this podcast. You probably also know I like to eat good food, and you probably know I have two small children and a wife who is a busy working musician, and furthermore comes from Beijing, which means that the husband is the one who must cook in our house, and the food's got to be good, otherwise my wife and children will moan like demons. But I often have maybe half an hour to cook between finishing off my work and the chaos of children coming home. So I was delighted when HelloFresh decided to support Seneca. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery company that offers a bunch of different menus. So far I've tried balsamic fig chicken, southwestern stuffed peppers and mushu pork tacos. You can choose the delivery day for each meal and you can pause the account if you go out of town. And each meal costs less than $10. The great thing about these kits is they teach you how to cook if you don't know how to cook at all. But even if you do cook a lot, they take you out of your cooking comfort zone. They make it super easy to make a new dish. I played around with the recipes a bit. I mean, I made the southwestern stuffed peppers much spicier because my family is used to a bit more heat than the average American. But the basic recipe was delicious, quick and easy. So, Hello Fresh. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, please visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code SUPCHINA30. That's SUPCHINA and then 30. Now, on with the show. Another thing you uh, talk about is how the uh, well-known gaps between central-led initiatives uh, and their local implementation uh, actually, you know, there's the great Chinese saying, the top has its policies and underneath people invent stratagems to deal with them. This actually makes the possibilities of alliances or, or some type of collaboration between central authorities and activist actors like uh, critical journalists. This is almost possible because of this, this dynamic. Um, the cases directed against local officials uh, and not at the center um, actually contribute to the state's resilience. We've certainly seen many instances where local officials release the hounds and uh, sick their goon squads on intrepid reporters and then find themselves in, in trouble uh, with Beijing. So I can definitely you know, understand how this dynamic works. Can you explain a bit more how this works in the case of critical journalism? Give us some examples of cases where we've seen the center align in itself with investigative reporters against errant local officials. Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, the alignment is a little bit less less uh, sort of clear cut or structured as we might imagine. So it mainly manifests itself in central authorities not stopping journalists immediately from reporting on a certain issue. So it's giving them some leash. It's giving them exactly a yeah. little bit of leash to go out there and investigate in, par in part because sometimes they don't know that the journalists are actually there investigating it. So it's not like they know about every move of a journalist. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a little bit of that space and room. But it doesn't mean the central officials will somehow protect the journalists, right, once they're practicing or conducting these investigations in the field or what officially kind of align with them after the investigation is published. Uh, so the idea is basically once the issue becomes sensitive and it means that the public is widely discussing it, even if it's local level, it's still going to get censored and a journalist might still get crit critiqued. But at the beginning, they might have that little bit of space because it's a local level issue and because it's sort of in theory beneficial to resilience of the party, if that makes sense. 
So the alignment sort of manifested itself in, in most of these cases that I've examined, for example, when it comes to mining coverage, um, you know, there was space in, in each of these cases I've looked at to examine, uh, to examine each disaster, to at least report on it, and at times also to investigate why it happened, who was responsible, and so forth. But then also uh, this other second part of this alignment happens with the response of the state to the investigative report. Beyond censorship, they often end up punishing certain local officials who are involved uh, or who are responsible for the crisis. So you read the report, you'll see what so-and-so got punished, and that's part of the updated report that the journalists will make. So there's this kind of sort of symbolic alignment that we've responded to this grievance, to this crisis, and we're punishing those responsible. Yeah. And the same thing with Tianjin, right? Explosion, a number of officials and other uh, yeah, individuals were punished yeah. as well. So I think this idea of alignment happens at the beginning, allowing for a bit of space, and at the end, in responding to a crisis and punishing certain officials responsible. Fascinating. Maria, the period you cover in your book corresponds with a massive growth of internet use. I think the number of internet users at the beginning of the Hu Jintao period was well under 100 million. Uh, so still only single digit penetration. If I'm not mistaken, it had reached nearly 700 million by the end of the period, which is roughly 50% of the population. I know it's a huge question, but how did the advent of the internet and especially social media, you know, broadly defined to include BBSs, blogs, microblogs, and different online forums. How did this shift the power dynamic between critical journalists and the state? So, yeah, it's a great question. And I've been thinking about it for the past few years after, as you mentioned, this advent of the Internet has become more and more um, noticeable and, and important uh, in shaping this dynamic. I think the dynamic has been reshaped in a sense that it's the relationship, this improvisation has become even more intensified and um, operating at a faster speed. So on the one hand, uh, when it comes to officials in implementing censorship, as I mentioned sort of earlier, there are more tools now to censor, right? Because everything is online. So there are more possibilities of calling up a journalist, an editor, not even calling, it's mostly down through WeChat apps and tell them what to delete and how to frame a story, which in the past was not quite possible, right? You have to actually have a printed copy and maybe you remember from your days in Beijing some of this pages being ripped out of the newspapers, right? With, I think it was the Obama interview <laughs> yeah. at Namfang Zhongmo, just physically ripped out. But of course, that's not a typical strategy. But now it's much easier. It's much easier to keep molding content away uh, through social media platforms. Uh, so that's that's one side of the story. The censorship uh, capacity has really been, I think, regenerated and expanded. Uh, on the other side of the story, though, um, there are also mixed signals that some of these uh, censors are sending to journalists. So I've observed in practice, when it comes to Peng Pai, for instance, some signals they've received from Wang Xinban versus the propaganda departments to Enchambu were actually different. Some of them were well, more critical. The cyberspace administration of China. Yeah, so the cyberspace administration might send a more lenient order uh, than the propaganda department and vice versa. So in a sense, journalists were able to play off one against another and go for the more positive, no, not really positive, but kind of more lenient, more probable right. uh, you know, directive. I'm familiar with this approach. <laughs> yeah, so you're kind of playing one ball yeah. against another. Well, well, isn't there more centralization now under the CAC, under, under the Wang Xinban? Well, the idea is that there's more centralization, but there's still competing bureaucracies, at right. least as far as like last summer and the previous summer when I was observing that, they're still receiving multiple voices at times that tell them, direct them uh, what to do and how to how to publish something. But uh, at the same time, as I mentioned just a bit earlier as well, there's this possibility for creating new platforms that are not necessarily completely aligned with the state. So if we think about this Zim 80 phenomenon, the self-media and talk shows and various more entertaining platforms that have emerged, uh, they're not directly political. We think about something political that has a social value or that talks, taps into social issues uh, and concerns, they still have a political kind of resonance. Yeah, absolutely. So those platforms um, are directly a product of the social media era. And I think that's going to continue to expand and uh, reinvent itself. So, the, yeah, yeah, so the power dynamic has changed, but it hasn't fundamentally shifted in favor of one or the other. I think they both... I think it hasn't fundamentally shifted, but the acceleration of their uh, sort of interaction has definitely happened, and there's more, there are more interactions to observe, essentially. Uh, I want to ask you another question uh, related to the Internet. Uh, the, the state, I think, in the past was really able to very successfully segment its message uh, very effectively. They, they, they could craft and deliver messages for a particular segment of society, like for internet audiences and for the outside world, or to, to Nebu only, or just to the intellectuals, or just to, you know, kind of less sophisticated rural populations or what have you. So the internet has obviously changed this. Uh, on the one hand, you'd think that targeting could be even more effective, uh, just like it is here in the U.S., but at the same time, there's, you know, copious bleeding, there's spillover that the party can't really prevent, you know, I can see what they're saying to other segments of society and I can see the disconnect between these messages clearly. Uh, how has this changed? So I guess uh, the answer is also sort of twofold. On the one hand, 
yes, targeting specific groups maybe has become on the one hand harder because there are just there are more choices for various groups. So everyone has uh, the capacity they're to spoon fed. There's yeah, more. Yeah, they're not spoon fed. Right. You can you can choose. And of course, we talked also earlier at the CSIS event uh, the idea about this digital AI type platforms like Totiao that features the content that you want to to read. Right. So it's very hard for the government to cater the content directly because the companies are now doing the catering. So it's, there's some competitive interest there. Well, they seem to have fixed that problem. Yeah, maybe. they seem to be fixing it. But uh, but <laughs> yeah, there's this, on the one hand, this kind of multiplicity of information. On the other hand, the internet has also allowed the party to create so many different modes of, you know, interactive propaganda that I've spoken about earlier today. At the talk, this idea of having platforms that cater to younger people, for instance, and recreate a more personable, warm, kind of engaging image of President C rather than this kind of image of a party official or ideologue, someone who's actually approachable. You can interact and follow him on maps and read his talks and <laughs> even chat with him and clap alongside at the 19th Party Congress, right? There's this side of the story. And then there's also uh, the side of nationalist, kind of nationalistic voices and a lot of exchange students, Chinese exchange students happen to turn more nationalistic over time, as we've observed in the States, but also in other countries. And the party media has been tapping into those voices and publicizing them to domestic audiences. Uh, uh, telling stories about China, right? Telling t- stories about China, but also, you know, campaigns like taking the photo with the national flag campaign right, started right, in Australia right, and then making that kind of this big deal that post 90s generation is patriotic you know we should definitely advertise that to young people who are still in China so I guess um, what I'm trying to say is that there, there are more tactics that are also now at the disposal of the state and essentially instead of t- catering it directly they might just multiply the strategies so whoever's going to read that is going to read that it's going to appeal to who it's meant to appeal to as opposed to specifically kind of dividing the lines of which product is suited for what audience I guess one thing I did want to point out as well um, as part of this notion that we talked so much about media crackdown and about all the strategies of control something I brought up today as well was that um, I don't think the party is completely confident or overpowerful in managing public opinion because they're referring to it constantly as a battlefield and there is certain insecurity even speaking to officials on the ground and uh, media producers that the public opinion is far from captured, right? It's, right. it's very diverse. It's, it's distracted, first of all. Nobody's watching those slogans. Nobody's looking at this public advertisement posters and so forth. They're looking at what they want to look at and even uh, jokingly, uh, an official interview said that officials themselves don't read official outlets, you know, media. They're just <laughs> playing video games on their phones and having fun, essentially. They're, they're recreating this ritual and hiding under this sort of shadow of social media and doing what they want. So I guess what I'm trying to get to is that um, it's by far, far from being a warm bottle. There's still a lot to do. And I think uh, we're going to see more and more strategies coming out of the C regime in the, attracting the public, not only in controlling public opinion. Both of those things are going to get sharpened as we, we move along. So we can expect more patriotic Yeah, hip-hop. I think we're going to expect that and many other films like Wolf Warrior 2 and all sorts of exciting, you know, cultural oh, products to come yeah, onto yeah. our screens. And entertain us. <laughs> Maria, let's turn to something that I find really fascinating, which is your comparison of China's media policy uh, to that of another authoritarian state, which is, of course, Russia. Uh, under Putin, Russia's critical journalists have been, you know, relegated to the margins. I think just yesterday, Alexei Navalny was arrested. Um, I mean, you know, some of them have He's not been just been marginalized, times. but been yeah. killed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we look at Boris Nemtsov and, and other people like that. Uh, your interviews with many Russian liberal journalists suggest that, that the Russians, these you know, the, unlike their Chinese counterparts, they see themselves as implacable opponents of the regime. They're not interested in gradualism. They're not interested in constructive criticism. They're interested in, in, in exposing truth, you know, and, and undermining the fundamental Ill- legitimacy of the regime or exposing its illegitimacy. Um, that's very, very different from the Chinese. What does this say about the nature of Putin-era Russian leadership and, and Chinese leadership, you know, from Hu and Wen to, to Xi Jinping? Thank you. Yeah, great question. So, I think the first thing it tells us, or we should I think, think about, is this idea of different state-society dynamics in Russia than in China. So in Russia, some scholars have referred to the state-society relationship as sort of that of a divorce yeah. or, a, or a pact that the, Putin has signed with society, a non-interference pact. So we provide for certain economic uh, you know, growth, uh, stability as the regime, but you, the public, should not interfere. You, know, you shouldn't demand uh, too much, and we sort of leave each other alone. Well, people have said the same thing about China, though, that, that, that there's this implicit pact you stay out of politics mm-hmm. and we will make your lives good and give you you know personal freedoms 
Right. I mean, I think in the case of China, the, the, the difference is that there is a more active engagement with society. And there's, there's an obsession with studying public opinion, understanding what does the public want, what are the demands and concerns of the society that we can in turn use to both shape, again, that you know, propaganda uh, sphere, but also to shape policies as well. There's this constant interaction. The relationship between the state and society in China is extremely dynamic, I would say, even if it's, uh, you know, of course, it's contentious and there are many negative facets of the contestation. But at the same time, there's a lot of engagement. In the case of Russia, I would say the engagement is uh, less uh, prominent. And as one journalist, uh, critical journalist in Russia has noted to me, no matter how much I write or what I report on or how crucial my stories are, you can never reach to the other side. The other side is the government. Right. So the, the idea is that nobody's paying attention. They, they completely ignore they it. Ignore the, they, their strategy is just to ignore it and to marginalize the critics. But also, I wanted to note that beyond this, you know, distinctions in regime, perhaps types of state society dynamics, it's important to note the historic experience um, that differentiates the two cases. So in sure. the case of uh, Russia, the 90s was a formative period um, of democracy, right? Journalists had incredible uh, freedoms that many media outlets abused, you know, quite <laughs> gravely and took bribes and published compromat or fake news, uh, as we refer to now. But nonetheless, they were very empowered. They could enter any room. They could get any interview. It was a very exciting time to be journalist. So, yeah, so, so I remember in your book, you talk about this as, as offering sort of an alternative reality that they can still look to. Uh, and, and maybe this is empowering for them. I mean, it, it makes them feel like there is a, a, a possible uh, alternative we can we can fight. Yeah, for. there's a comparison, right. right? So there's something to look into. And of, of course, the counter argument would be, well, what about young people? They don't have that experience. How would they know? But, you know, they learn about the stories from their mentors, from old generation journalists, from history books. They have it's very it's a very important, I think, historic moment that uh, culminated in Glasnost, right? This opening up of the media that we're going to get to, I think, later on. But it's important to note that this period was really quite distinctive from what we experienced in China, you know, Tiananmen Square and post Tiananmen. Some scholars like Yang Gobin, you know, who studied the Internet extensively, refer yeah. to this notion of the compromise. Um, the idea that Tiananmen really taught uh, journalists and activists that unless you compromise, there's no way, you know, to survive in the system because the idea of a wider opening did not happen. They didn't reach what they wanted to reach um, in that protest, obviously. that sound right to you, Jeremy? Uh, it's very interesting. And I mean, it leads to the next question rather naturally, um, Maria. You make a very interesting argument that Mikhail Gorbachev actually invested journalists with too much power and that by enlisting them as allies, they ended up getting a bit uppity and ultimately used their power to overwhelm political elites and bring about fundamental system change, which may not have been a good thing. Obviously, the Chinese leadership, and Xi Jinping in particular, has been quite obsessed with what Gorbachev oh, did yeah. wrong. Is this one of their big takeaways? Yeah, I believe so. And has this shaped media policy, yeah, I think do you the Gorbachev think? case has been studied extensively, and I think it still continues to be studied. I was looking into uh, the new works published on this topic uh, under C, and actually this subject has accelerated. There's more and more published under C, so it's become even more important subject since he came to power, which is also quite, I think, intriguing, right? Yeah. So um, the subject of media management in particular, it's sensitive, so you don't really hear a lot of discussions about that, you know, what, what was happening, because if once you tap into it, you have to discuss the fact that journalists got quite a lot of freedom, and there was a period of democratization that China, I think, definitely wants to prevent and, and fears in many ways. So it's an anti-model. It's an anti-model how to handle um, critical journalism. And also a big distinction here is that in Glasnost period, the opening initially was almost the same, I think, as this idea of Yulun Diandu we talked about earlier. The media should help. Media should help reform the Soviet system. Gorbachev never intended for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, right? If you read his memoirs, he wasn't trying to dissolve it or to ruin the whole system. He wanted the media to be kind of a partner in right. informing the public that we need to reform the system. Uh, but as a result of that, um, and alongside with that, uh, there weren't enough control mechanisms in place to sort of restrain and signal, preemptively signal to journalists what they should or shouldn't do. So the signals were often almost evaporated. And as a result, some of these journalists, they thought, well, you can scream anything you want and you can still get through. So why not, you know, why not go with that, which is, of course, not the case in contemporary China, where you have plenty of signals preemptively in post factum that are restricting journalists from attaining that potential, you know, do, open. Do you think that there's the possibility of reviving a kind of more collaborative model? I mean, that there is space for that, that approach to... to happening yet? Or is that ship already sailed in Russia? Is it too late for that? Well, I think the collaborative model exists on some level with more mainstream intellectuals okay. and mainstream journalists, not the ones who are too critical or kind of liberal minded. But the, yeah, the, someone who's more in the middle. Uh, those individuals would happily, I think, work with the government and, um, you know, follow all sorts of instincts and strategies to survive, survive in the system. But we're talking about the most kind of the outlier cases uh, in, the, in Russia. 
reviving collaboration with the state, I think is very unlikely, as you see, as uh, Kaiser brought up Navalny example, but also the protests in 2011, if you remember the White Ribbon protest movement in Russia, yeah, they brought out thousands of people on the streets, the biggest movement since 1991. Um, who, it was actually led uh, and galvanized by journalists, which was fascinating. The same critical journalists, Navalny himself is a journalist, he was a right. blogger, an anti-corruption blogger. So he had a website and he became a huge activist. But a number of other actors as well were, you know, galvanizing movements online, they were all, the ones participating participating, and they also were the ones covering these movements uh, by independent news outlets. So you see that this role is far from the kind of more collaborative consultants, if you wish, or constructive critics of the state oh, yeah, that we see in China. Fun. Maria, I, I thought it was very interesting how uh, Putin basically suffers certain publications and television stations to exist. And some cynics you interviewed claim that this is just so he can point to them and claim that there's free speech. <laughs> is there anything analogous to this in China? And also, uh, if I can ask, like the image I have in my mind of the difference between being a journalist in China and Russia is, it seems that you might be able to get away with a lot more in Russia and you're not micromanaged in the way that you are in China. But if you put a step wrong, somebody might shoot you on your uh, doorstep right. <laughs> in Russia. Whereas in China, you're more likely to lose your job. And if you really, really persist and won't shut up, you might end up in jail. Yeah, you should be writing that report yourself. <laughs> you got it all figured out. It's perfect. But uh, yeah, just to go back first to the point about uh, the cynical kind of reaction, right, allowing for free speech. Uh, I think there was a very interesting metaphor that one of the journalist interviews used in describing this relationship in Russia. He said that no matter how many outlets are going to be shut down or how many journalists murdered, Nova Gazeta is the most prominent investigative news outlet in Moscow, is going to persist and it's going to serve as visitna kartochka, which means business card of press freedom. He literally used that metaphor of a business card because uh -huh. we need to show off to the world that we still have right, press freedom. And indeed, Putin often did do so in many of his speeches. Um, I don't think that in China there's this analogous situation because unlike Russia, China is not really promoting itself as a Western democracy. What, what about the foreign press in China? I mean, not the foreign press, but the, the English language press. Sometimes there's a huge gap between what mm -hmm. they're allowed to write about and what, what the, the Chinese language media is. And I feel sometimes like the, the game is you can point to that and say, see, it's quite liberal. So the English language press right, um, right, right, right. that's reporting outside of China. Right, right, right. Uh, Not yeah. just reporting outside of China, but even writing you about China. You mean like China. Sixth Tone, Kaiser? Yeah, Sixth right, Tone. Sixth Tone, for example. Yeah, definitely. There, there, is, there is that uh, more creative space, I think, or open space allocated to that. And I think we could also point to that as part of this guarded improvisation because they're not reporting on very high level issues either, but they are definitely sticking their, you know, guts into issues that are perhaps less accessible to mainstream, you know, Chinese language uh, news sources. How many people are going to read that is another question. I mean, of course, many people read English, but I don't know if it's Sixth Tone is the first outlet that they're going to access when they read the news. Uh, but I don't think that the government in China directly promotes this or advertises this kind of cynical attitude that, hey, you know, we have press freedom because I don't think China ever claims to have complete press freedom or to be a democracy, whereas Russia proclaims that it is a democracy because they have right. elections, right? So people have elected Putin. Uh, it's a democratic process. That's what they claim. And so we have free have press. Trapping, yeah, right. so it's kind of like the trappings of democracy have to be present and ad advocate articulated at uh, every occasion, whereas in the case of China, it's a different system altogether. So I don't think there's this pressure to sort of succumb to the democratic standards, so to speak. Um, but uh, the second part about the pressures that journalists face in Russia, this idea of being less constrained but facing more arbitrary punishment, I think that's that's exactly um, you know on the point, and that's something that I've observed and found in my research as well, is that they have more access to topics that, again, Chinese journalists would never be able to dream about. For example, reporting on Putin's various castles. You know, who wouldn't want right. to do that in China, right? It's very you exciting. You never get away with Yeah, you never get away with the corruption, you know, schemes of the highest leadership, right? Reporting on um, issues in the past that looked at Chechnya, terrorism, and all sorts of insurgencies that, again, are completely inaccessible. Issues of separatism, very sensitive and very dangerous um, issues. Russian media, some of them, have gotten away with doing that. So it's almost like, you know, when you talk about censorship, very few people are able to name the exact things they can do. You know, it's hard for them They have to think about, oh, well, we don't really have censorship. But then uh, the arbitrary punishment is uh, is quite cruel and non-negotiable. I mean, we hear about the murders. Um, and yes, I would agree that in China, they don't talk about murders. At least nobody has brought up murder as a consequence of their reporting, potentially. Uh, but in Russia, if you walk into Nova Gazeta office, the first thing you see on the wall are the photographs of uh, journalists who've been murdered. And uh, they've shown those photos to all their interns and new newcomers to say that, hey, you know, you got to take responsibility for your choices. If you're coming to work here, you might you might die, right? Nobody's going to protect you. But it's not only, of course, murders that are the rare, still the rare, relatively rare occasion or rare punishment. What you get um, more often are um, 
potential beatings, like you get, you know, the body gets crippled so you can no longer do the reporting, or uh, you get legal uh, fees, fines, and all sorts of other orders. So in Russia, they don't have legal, you know, direct censorship, but they have all sorts of um, ways to indirectly close the story, but also to shut down a website and shut down the entire outlet if something goes against um, the anti-extremism legislation. So anything can be considered extremist, right? Right. So Russian government can simply call up a given outlet, say, this is extremist content, we're going to shut you down. And that's also quite unpredictable. So all of these pressures happen post-factum. Um, they're very arbitrary and they're non-negotiable. Well, and vital in some cases. And vital, yeah, and, and extremely yeah, dangerous in, in some cases. Let's, let's talk about something else that I've discussed uh, with Jeremy and, and other guests on the show before. Uh, the, the Putin regime's uh, approach of decentering the truth, this kind of deliberate undermining of any kind of epistemological norms. Is this a feature of Chinese media policy that you can tell, or, or is, I, I mean, my sense is that Chinese media policy is very different. That it, you know, they, they maybe cling a little too hard to a truth, or right? Yeah, I, I I would say that it's quite different, and absolutely in Russia, there's been this move to uh, creating they call it alternative realities, essentially, and then you know pushing them out as truths. And uh, we've seen this in the coverage of the plane crash, in the plane that flew over Ukraine. Right, they uh, said that it was filled with dead bodies yeah, before. Yeah, dead bodies. But... And, and you know, it's, it's <laughs> fascinating that this, this alternative reality construction has actually broken up many families I've known. Uh, divorces have followed because some one person would believe in this new reality, a very intelligent person, well-educated, you know, has access to any possible sources. There's no censorship issue there. Uh, and Does then it sound like some place you know? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and, and then the, the partner does not believe in it. So literally, I've seen couples breaking up, you know, families fighting. It's extremely sensitive. Uh, it's been it's been really a huge cost on family members, including my own family. So I know, oh, no. I know very well, you know how not to talk about certain issues with some members of my family. M Maria, sorry for a, a, a slight um, digression, but do you know, were people using the, the term alternate reality in Russia before uh, it was popularized in the United States by, uh, what's her name, Kelly Alternative Conway. facts. There's alternative facts here, right? Yeah, this, this, tr this term has been used for quite a while, especially in discussion with the conflict in Ukraine. Wow. I remember uh, at a conference, I think it was like three years ago, I was speaking to a professor who's also an advocacy person in uh, Kiev who collected a lot of this so-called misinformation or alternative reality uh, examples uh, on a data kind of website. And he was telling me he was using this exact term and he was shocked by how uh, outraged, you know, how outraging these are and how extreme some of these uh, ulterior realities, you know, appear on Ukrainian media and Russian media, just how crazy these scenarios uh, are projected, but also how many people believe them. You know, they seem to yeah. believe this this oh. so-called truth. It's, it's really fascinating. Jeremy, of course, there's a precedent here, too. That you remember, was it Rumsfeld who talked about the real the limitations of the reality-based community? <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't Rumsfeld. That was... That was um, Karl Rove? Karl Rove, right. It was Karl Rove. Karl Rove. But yeah. I guess I wanted to get back to that uh, part about China, though, we didn't talk about. Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to mention that I, I don't think in China th there is the same construction of an alternative reality. I think there's this sticking to the truth and explaining the truth. So it's constant kind of explanation that this is the right thing and this is why and shaming whoever said the wrong thing. You know, for example, in the anti-corruption campaign, all this publicized kind of rituals of uh, officials who are punished, who are sorry, who are, you know feeling guilty and this really emotional uh, sort of scenes that are being taped, they're not necessarily fake, but they're kind of manufactured, right? But the idea is to kind of explain what the truth really is. And let's make people who are guilty, who committed certain crime, come out and explain that themselves. Mm. So I think it's a very different... Um, the different CCTV orange jumpsuit confession. Exactly, the orange jumpsuit, jumpsuit confession. And there's a fascinating paper coming out in uh, public culture by Christian Soros on that. It's going to be one of the best, I think, on this topic. Wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I also, think it's, it's yeah. a very Historical different... Historical nihilism, the obsession Historical with that. nihilism. Right, yeah, it's, right, it's right. different. I think it's a different strategy, and I guess in the Russian case, it seems to be more sophisticated in some ways. But I don't know whether the strategy would work on other publics. Like I don't know if it's something that's transferable to every context, or if it's very Russia specific. Uh, it seems to be transferable to our public. Well, yeah, here. we seem to be. <laughs> yeah, gullible or something. And so back to China and Maria, if I may uh, ask you the big takeaways. Um, your work, it doesn't just tell us something about how critical journalism functions in China. I think there are far more implications. It's, it's uh, 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 sorry, let me take that again. Um, there are far more implications. Can you lay out what you believe the implications are when it comes to our broader understanding of Chinese society and politics? 
and what your work says about how Chinese authoritarianism compares to other authoritarian states. Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah, so I'll start with the societal uh, elements, or what we can learn, or how we should approach the analysis of Chinese society. I think the the two things, uh, the two implications I wanted to note is that we should start out uh, in thinking about Chinese society, especially activism, from the premise of collaboration or partnership, uh, as opposed to this premise of direct contestation or opposition to the state. And I think a lot of uh, research still does that. They still start out with this idea of contestation as in opposition to the state, and then they engage with analyzing these various dynamics. So I think the first premise should be to look at this as uh, a collaborative relationship by choice or by force or whatever you want to use to explain that, but and then to look at how this actually works in various sectors. I think comparing them across spheres and sectors would be really fascinating, how it holds up, you know, with other actors. And the second, I think, important takeaway is the significance of ambiguity or fluidity, fluid roles of the game as a potentially empowering feature when it comes to the perseverance of social activism in China. So as opposed to this idea that transparency is, you know, empowering uh, activism, it's a very Western notion. What we see in China is actually if we have more transparency, it's probably going to be to the disadvantage of um, the bottom-up activism because it's going to be more rigid, more explicit rules. Huh. So if we have less transparency, more fluidity, which is actually something that's changing now, right? We have more rules explicitly pronounced by the state, then there's actually more space to negotiate back and forth. A bigger gray zone. To bigger play gray in. zone. Right. So ambiguity is often, often and most often linked to self-censorship, which I agree is one of the effects of this um, type of policy. But at the same time, it's also quite empowering, especially in authoritarian environments. That is that is a fascinating idea. That's a, a really original idea as well. I think it's it's uh, one that has the potential to really kind of transform somebody's understanding of, of how it works. Um, yeah, and it has implications for policy as well. You know, what kind of things do we promote, you know, if we, if we do promote any kind of governance initiatives in country? You know, what do we want to focus on more? Is it transparency? Is it tactics to navigate fluidity? You know, what are we trying to really emphasize. And then for Chinese political system, we think about how Chinese political system has been conceptualized and thought about in recent years. I think the model that many of your listeners are probably familiar with this idea of consultative authoritarianism, sure. you know, Chinese yeah. system really kind of builds on those consultations. I think this book sort of complicates this idea uh, in a sense that it questions, you know, how effective are these consultations, right? Because many, many of them are, most of them are state driven, and they are very flexible. So the idea that consultations always improve governance, I think that's something that we really have to question. Right. You know, are they really improving governance or is it more of a facade? You know, how much of it is short-term versus long-term? Systemic versus, versus ad hoc? I, I mean, think I feel like, you know, part of it is is just sort of a way to secure buy-in, a, a way for to, in, to insist that the... the the critical journalists sort of signal assent. Exactly, yeah. At the end, and right. if you look at the cases, you know, for example, the the ones I've examined, they've often resulted in immediate response, this ad hoc reaction. Yes, we should fix this. We should rebuild the schools. We should, you know, close down the mine. But in the long term, uh, the response is very mixed. You know, with the schools, nobody actually got punished at the local level, and uh, the issue became more and more sensitive over time. And that again suggests that how effective was that consultation? And what actually got changed? Uh, did other schools get rebuilt in other contexts in other provinces? Is this something that's really been taken seriously? So that's something like a takeaway to kind of rethink to, to more uh, to complicate this idea of consultative authoritarianism as su effective, successful model that contributes to resilience only. Right. right. It makes the system stronger. Uh, and when it comes to other autocracies, I think what this book showcases is this participatory channels for uh, critique or activism within the system. They can go beyond, uh, first of all, elections. That's the, the most frequent one that we hear sure. about, electoral authoritarianism. And they can also serve different roles in different contexts. So in the case of Russia, for instance, we see this role of image making, the creation of a more democratic image. That's the role that the government endows uh, to these outlets. In the case of China, we see a very fluid, ambiguous, but still um, nonetheless a governance role sure. that these pockets are endowed with. So we see these different functions. And last, I think it questions the categorization of authoritarian regimes more broadly. Most of the studies we look at that plunge kind of China in these larger comparisons, China is actually in the pocket with North Korea, right, if you believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to authoritarian state, it's considered to be a closed authoritarian system. Yeah, when they look at the, the level of press freedom, they, they rank right. it down there with like, you know... And elections, right? The lack Sudan of elections right. means that it's completely unfree. So this sort of makes us rethink, though, how do we actually compare authoritarian states, which one, you know, how do we judge how democratic they are? Is it based on this democratic institutions like elections? Is it about the power that journalists have an affecting, you know, change in the system? Is it other measures or are there ways to rethink it? But I also wanted to say that beyond autocracies, beyond authoritarianism in China, I think this book also offers some lessons uh, for democratic systems, especially at the time of democratic erosion here in the United States. Uh, essentially, it questions how different, you know, the press freedom environments are, you know, across the spectrum, right? right. To an extent, uh, media oversight role, which is only associated with democratic systems, can survive in a very small capacity, nonetheless, in authoritarian 
humanitarian context. That's the first thing. And second of all, some of the pressures that journalists face beyond the obvious censorship by the state, the commercial pressures, uh, the pressure of just finding a lasting job, the pressure of creating relationships with officials, finding information, they also are quite comparable across different contexts. So I think what we need is more, more comparisons that are not only authoritarian, but also that place China in a more global context across the spectrum. Well, we look forward to more work on, on this. I mean, I know that you're you're off to Africa soon to be looking at, at uh, and I, you know we're going to invite you back to talk about another topic that you know well, which is the relationship between Russia and China. But well, first, let's. I mean, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. I, I'm really eager uh, to get get you you know back onto the show. Thank maybe you for, for having one me. of our live shows in in in, in New York. Uh, before we go, uh, let's let's do recommendations. But first, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Visit subchina.com to subscribe to our newsletter and read some of the great original writing that we're featuring on the site. Uh, please also follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, where the handle is SubChina News, or drop us an email. Seneca at SupChina.com. Of course, if you want to support what we are doing, you should sign up for SupChina Access, which Jeremy told you about at the top of the hour, uh, or at least go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. So thanks in advance. And on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. And let's be very quick here. We've been running kind of long. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll do. It's a book that uh, I've had for a while unread, and it's sort of... Um, made itself uh, appear out of a box moved from China. It's called The Afrikaners, Biography of a People, a, a history book by Herman uh, Giliomi, G-I-L-I-O-M-E-E. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm just about finished with it. It's a fascinating history of the Afrikaans people from their, you know, migration from Holland, arrival in Africa, the great eventually trek. calling themselves Africans, uh, right through to the end of apartheid. Oh, wow. Um, really, really interesting. Okay, great. Nothing to do with China, but there we go. Maria, what do you have for us? So I wanted to recommend a book, um, since we talk so much about Russia and the Soviet Union, I wanted to recommend the best book that I've been reading and I'm reviewing it as of late. It's called Losing Pravda by Natalia Rudakova. Uh, she writes about this erosion of truth and essentially the crisis of post-truth in Russia that appeared much earlier in Russia than it has in the United States and across the Western context. And she traces this relationships between journalists and the state from the Soviet period all the way to the Putin period. Oh, wow. And and really the, the part about the Soviet Union, late Soviet Union, extremely is resonant really very much to my book and this idea of collaboration between journalists and the state. And she writes in a really engaging style. It's extremely rich work and I would highly recommend it. And there's a pun there in the title, right? Losing Pravda. Yeah, it's a fantastic Pravda title. She spent a long time in the field and the book is out with Cambridge Press in paperback. So it's affordable. <laughs> Unlike <laughs> yours. <right? laughs> yes, exactly. I'm okay, jealous. so uh, I, it's possible that I've recommended this before, but I'm going to uh, re-up this because it's been such a constant source of joy for me in my life. I recommend the amazing pop music of the late 1970s. Uh, go on Spotify, check, check out, out playlists. Tonight. I love <laughs> this stuff. On, so like 77 to 79, uh, Billboard Top 100s from those years. You can just sort of stick them on random. Uh, they're just It's just so fun to, and joyous to listen to that the music from that time. Brings me right back. Anyway, Maria Reptikova, thank you once again. It's, it's just great to have you on the show. Thanks, Maria. Thank uh, you so much. It's been a real pleasure and honor. Oh, excellent. Uh, the book, let me remind you, is called Media Politics in China. I highly recommend it. Uh, look for a forthcoming article, too. Uh, when, when and where is that going to be published, Maria? It's going to be published in the Comparative Politics Journal, and it's aimed at the, the print issue in October, but I think it's going to appear online sometime this summer. Okay, and it's extremely readable, by the way. I mean, so one thing that, that's great about your, your work is that it's it's not in academic It's It's quite accessible. Thank you. I try to do that. Uh, Jeremy, you'll appreciate that. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> anyway, we look forward to having you back on the show. Love the work that you've done. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.